Welcome to Heart of the Enneagram. I'm Chris Copeland. And I'm Sandra Smith. And we invite you to take a courageous and loving look at what is. this episode, we explore the spiritual dimensions of type one. You asked how I experience this kind of acceptance or serenity, and it feels like a descent or an ascent. I don't know. For me, it feels like a sinking into a place where differences and distinctions dissolve. And of course, with that, right and wrong go away, at least for a little while. On today's episode, we will be exploring the spiritual growth of type one, called the perfectionist, also called the reformer. So we invite you, all you listeners, to open all three brains and be present with a curious mind, a grounded body, and an open heart. All three centers open and accessible, breathing so the body has a memory As we listen to this interview of a type one, we invite you to bring forward the type one in you. So for type one, this is a type that has a focus of attention on error. What's not quite right? Where's the disorder? They are the improving junkies. They strive to make things better. So the spiritual transformative process for type one is the move from the vice of anger to the virtue of serenity. We might also say serenity is acceptance. So in this place of serenity or acceptance, ones are no longer improving because there is nothing to improve. All is inherently perfect. And we can relax into this. So it's the move from anger to serenity, the narrow gate, moving through the gate of acceptance. So to help us uh, explore and illuminate uh, this type one and the growth of type one, um, I'm pleased to welcome Michelle Voss-Roberts to our studio, as it were. (laughs) Um, Michelle is the Associate Dean for Academic Affairs and the Associate Professor of Theology at Wake Forest University School of Divinity and a wonderful colleague. Um, Michelle's also um, ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. So, Michelle, welcome. We're glad you're with us. Thank you. Yep. So to begin, uh, kind of um, the way we want to invite you to begin reflecting some about this movement um, from anger to serenity or to acceptance or in this kind of the spiritual growth of type one, I want to begin by reading um, a poem And uh, this is uh, from Mary Oliver. You may be familiar with this. You do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. That's so beautiful. What comes up for you as you hear that? It sounds like my spiritual path, actually. Mm. I was raised in a tradition that strongly emphasized confession. And as someone who leads with type one, 
I was pretty good at that. Um, it really felt like it was a good thing, the thing I was supposed to do to enumerate all my faults and to figure out how to do better. And that was a strong part of my spiritual life. Um, it's like the poem says, um, sort of dragging yourself on your knees in repentance. And if that's the whole of your spiritual life, it's pretty unhealthy, um, it's pretty damaging. And so through the practices that we'll talk about today, it has been a kind of path to acceptance where the practice is actually to quiet that listing of faults and to open to something more beautiful. Mm -hmm. What are some practices or what's a practice perhaps for you that has helped you, as you said, quiet that my words could have critical mind, but also that, you know, um, what, what, what have those been like for you? So I've, uh, I did not have the Enneagram to help me um, to find these practices. So I found them rather intuitively. I took up a practice of yoga, which very strongly focuses on the breath. So you move with the breath. And I experienced that as very much getting myself out of my head. So when my thoughts were on my discomfort or on what I was going to do after yoga class, I could just gently return to the breath and move. And so there's a relaxation there too that's also very helpful for someone who leads with type one. When I can't get to yoga class, which doesn't, it doesn't happen very much these days, I do find myself at the end of the day guiding myself through a relaxation so that my body can release whatever it's been holding and that my mind can stop its work for the day. And oftentimes, the mind of a one, the work is focused on the task, the next task. So a spiritual practice then would be one that allows you to see no task. Yes, so because I, I don't have... Well, I suppose yoga was my entryway into other forms of meditation. And so for a long time, I gave up the chattering type of prayer where I was talking to God all the time and hoping to correct my faults and all of that. I just let that go as a practice and would follow my breath mm. and release the tasks, release the thoughts, Lately, I've been introduced to Centering Prayer, which does a lot of the same work. And lately, my practice of Centering Prayer has been about letting my tasks for the day wait until I'm finished. And when I'm feeling most frustrated or most stressed out because I'm not able to do what I think I ought to be doing, it's very instinctual. I can actually feel it in my body, the tension that tells me that something is not right and I can become rather wound up and rather rigid. Mm. And so uh, to learn how to release that, it, well, first of all, to recognize that it's happening and then to release that and be okay with what's happening in the moment. Okay, I can't do that right now. I'm here right now. Um, has been a helpful way that I can recognize in my body that I'm uncomfortable and then do do something in my body to um, 
accept the situation. So what are the literal, what are some literal cues for you? Like literal body cues? What, what, what does that look like for you? How do you experience that? Um, I will notice that I, I actually feel a little bit ill. Um, my stomach, my mind, uh, it feels a little bit like being car sick. And wow. I, um, will sometimes notice my hands are clenched. And so just releasing that and, and letting my hands rest on my lap. Recently, I was in a situation where I was finding myself become fr becoming frustrated with the perspectives and political views of the person that I was with. And I was able to bring my centering pra prayer practice into that and recognize what was happening and how I was feeling and not say anything, not react to it and just let it pass. And I think my visit with that person went so much better <laughs> <laughs> because without that practice, I know that my tendency is to jump in and correct someone or enlighten them about something <laughs> that they probably didn't know, <laughs> which would definitely change their mind. <laughs> and allowing that impulse to pass is fine. The world didn't end and my relationship with this person stayed pretty good. You talked a little bit about this, but in serenity may not be, we talk about serenity as the, the virtue of type one, it may not be the word you resonate with. I love Sandra's word of acceptance. You've talked a little bit about acceptance, but how can you think of how um, that arises for you when you notice that arising for you? What helps that uh, come up for you? Sure. One of the things that's that's often used to describe someone who leads with type one is that we're dualistic thinkers. Mm -hmm right and wrong, good and bad. And when I'm in that reactive mode, I tend to, to go there, like, no, this is wrong, you are wrong, I must do something to change it. And that language of dualism is something that's been with me for my whole scholarly life. I've been researching traditions that are non-dualistic or that have some relation to non-duality and I was reading recently Cynthia Bourgeau's book on the heart of centering prayer where she uses the language of non-duality quite a bit and so you asked how I experience this kind of acceptance or serenity and it feels like a descent or an ascent I don't know for me it feels like a sinking into a place where differences and distinctions dissolve. Mm. And of course, with that, right and wrong go away, at least for a little while. Mm. So um, it's a place of union. It's a sort of warm glow. Um, and it feels very peaceful wow. and healing. Wow. This is beautiful. I notice when you say right and wrong dissolve, like I, I, I sense some emotion from you as you said that. Hmm. Well, that's hard because one of the virtues of the one is that we make the world better. And 
in order to do that, we have to be able to see and feel very passionately about right and wrong, about justice, really. Yeah. And some of my writing has been on anger as a spiritual, um, as a religious emotion, mm. a righteous anger for justice that drives people and communities to to make a difference, to change something yeah. in the world. And even though anger is the vice of this type, I do see a place for it. And part of the work is also then to think about what sustains that kind of energy, what else do you need alongside that kind of energy. And so I don't know that I ever want to get to a place and maybe I'm, I just haven't aged enough where I say everything is perfect as it is <laughs> right. because when I see people who are treated poorly and when I see systems that are unjust, I, I, can't, I can't say that's perfect. Um, at the same time, to develop a spiritual practice where I can find a place of wholeness from which to work for good in the world that's important. Mm. What's uh, thank you? That is so beautiful. I what part of what strikes me just in you naming that is you've also named not a very non-dual way of thinking. Mm. So you've said I both want to take the gifts of the anger and see the injustices and work for that and and be clear about the, having a prophetic voice for that. And at the same time, I want to, you know. Ac- come to places of acceptance and kind of, so I, I love you holding both of those in a non-dual way. It's lovely. Yes. I also wonder, Michelle, um, I know that ones have a deeply caring heart and you've spoken to the passionate side of this and justice making. Um, I wonder about in your close relationships, how this deeply caring heart moves past improving. Hmm. That is a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a story, yeah. <laughs> if one comes to mind. It is tough for type one, yeah. How to care without improving. I recently returned from a retreat and where, where I experienced people being very present to one another mm-hmm. and even complete strangers just loving each other. Mm-hmm. And I took some of that back with me so that um, the first couple days I was with my spouse and my child, I would just come and sit next to them in the morning and be with them. Mm. Mm. And I don't know if they noticed that, but I noticed yeah. it. The journey for type one is right here yep. in this tender place that Michelle finds sitting in the morning with intimate ones nothing to do, nowhere to go. You arrived. Oneness. Unity. Peace. You become the teacher in that. When ones, I like to call them wonderfuls, (laughs) when they get to that moment, they are the teacher in acceptance. The most present, non-judging people in that place.
I was struck when you were talking about your your scholarly work, um, seeking non-dualist sort of non-dualist ways. I mean, I'm part of your you're a theology professor, so you're studying different uh, religious traditions and doing some comparative work. And um, so I'm struck by it kind of vocationally. There's this way you're, you, at least as I understand it, kind of have been drawn to non-dualistic ways of thinking, which informs even what you do vocationally. Yes. And it's wonderful to teach at an ecumenical school where as a theology professor, it's not my job to teach this is the way we view Christ or this is our model of the church. There's no one way. And so a lot of my work is being with a group of diverse students, so I can't presume any particular denominational formation, and sharing with them, all right, we're going to do Christology today. Here are four different very prominent Christian ways of thinking about how Jesus saves and having students to recognize themselves in those models, but then also to become opened up to other narratives and other ways of telling the story and other ways of experiencing salvation or liberation. And so I I hadn't thought about it this way before, but by teaching through a multiplicity of views, it is a way of breaking down a right and wrong. It's a way of um, moving towards a non-dualistic way of holding one's faith. Yeah, beautiful, beautifully said. <clears throat> it reminds me of this. Um, uh, we we picked out another poem for one, so it, and I'm drawn to it as I hear you say that. And you may be familiar with this Rumi quote: "Out beyond the out beyond the ideas of wrongdoing and right doing, there's a field." I'll meet you there. When the soul lies down in that grass, the world is too full to talk about. Ideas, language, even the phrase each other no longer makes sense. Mm. At the breakfast table. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was that moment at the breakfast table. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm. Yeah. And so for me, and I think for all good theologians, there's a strong apophatic dimension, the the place that's beyond words. And so even though theologians use a lot of words because we are um, sort of feeling our way towards truth and feeling our way towards um, the ultimate source of meaning, our words will fail us. And if we forget that, then we're back in that uh, place of right and wrong. It's a constant reminder, I think, in the work of theology that, okay, even as we're having a vigorous debate about why one view or one model is better than the other and finding the strengths and weaknesses of each one, to step back and remember that the reality that we're trying to describe with our words and concepts is so far beyond that. Mm. And if there's a way that theology can put us in contact with that reality... Um, that that can be a, a pretty special moment. Mm. It's really helpful, and it makes me think of, um, for you, as you say that, for you, how does your experience or image of the divine connect with that kind of beyond ideas? Or, um, I mean, I love what you said, because just personally it strikes me in the classroom when you're, you're moving beyond those sort of ideas of dualism or right and wrong or whatever, and you, you want to create an experience, an experience of the holy. 
and wow, teaching theology as an experience of the holy, you know, that's awesome. So for you, what does that, how, what does that look like for you? How do you experience the divine? Well, part of that has been about releasing images altogether. And so you can imagine that with the fault-finding confession practices, I had, when I was younger, a view of God as a judge and like with a gavel and the wig and the whole thing, <laughs> um, kind of. Male, you know, I'm guessing. Yes, male, for sure. Um, <laughs> uh, looked like somebody in my life who I experienced that way. Mm. But around the time I gave up that practice, I also started to dissolve images and concepts for God. And one of the ways is through an apathetic practice, one beyond images. And I think when I encounter God in prayer, there tends not to be an image or there's a sort of feeling of a presence, a sort of you or thou. So if there's a personal dimension, it's really, to me, the attributes or descriptions fall away. But when I teach and when I lead worship, again, the way beyond the the one judge or the father with a capital F um, is through a multiplicity of images. And so I like to choose a name for God or an image for God to focus on or meditate on in a way that surprises people, that might break them just for a moment out of whatever judge is sitting behind the desk or whatever father figure is populating their God concept to expand it just a little bit to, um, so through something surprising or unusual or unaccustomed that God might become a little bigger. might be um, one invitation for you uh, for growth? And this is a risky question to ask a one, right? (laughs) The invitation I've been extending to myself has been, well, it plays on the strengths of the one. We're very disciplined, actually, and responsible. And one of the things that is becoming more important to me is to have a spiritual discipline. And so I've invited myself to wake up earlier and go to bed earlier so that I have quiet time in the morning uh, for my practices. And as I've moved into that, it's been very life-giving in ways that have been surprising to me. So I would invite myself to continue to make space for practices Mm. um, and also to be gentle with myself if it doesn't always happen as I would want it to. Yeah, that's beautiful. Practices are a way we can love ourselves. Yes. Mm -hmm. Discipline is a way we love ourselves. And I think in discipline also comes freedom. Yeah. I really do. I think there are ways in which we can generate more freedom. Sure. I mean, I've noticed the things that have fallen away by making time for practices. And, uh, for example, staying up too late watching Netflix since I returned from uh, from Iona yeah. with you, Chris, yes. 
uh, I've made room for practices and have not watched television in the evenings. And I'm okay with that. Yes. That that's, um, my life has made space in ways that I didn't know that I was willing to make space. Mm. Lovely. So you're making more space for you. And it sounds like when we make more space for ourselves, we're not so much playing it safe with our hearts any longer. We're opening. Right, right. We're opening to what's unfolding. So blessings in that. Thank you. In that journey, Michelle. Um, I'd like to close by offering a prayer for type one. So I'll, this will be in the first person. So maybe a prayer that you might pray, but anyone who's listening or anyone of us who love ones can hear this through that lens. Divine grace, I thank you for giving me a keen sense of what is right and a diligent desire to live up to my ideals. Help me to be patient and forgiving. Teach me to be tolerant of mistakes rather than always finding fault with things and to accept what is. Show me the path of play that I might relax gently into myself and into your loving embrace. Amen. Amen. From our hearts to yours, I'm Sandra. And I'm Chris, and we want to invite you to continue to look courageously and lovingly at what is. We want to thank all who've made this podcast a reality, including Wake Forest University School of Divinity for their financial and institutional support. For Sally Ann Morris, who composed our theme music, and for Toby Becker, who provided graphic design. Thanks to Eric Merle for his editing expertise, to Tom and Lynn Berner, who provided recording space, and to the narrative Enneagram and our mentors, Helen Palmer and Dr. David Daniels, its founders. And special thanks to all of our guests. We offer this podcast as a free resource for personal and spiritual growth. And in order to continue this work, we need your support. Please visit our website, heartoftheenneagram.com, to make a contribution and to purchase our companion book. In the days that lie ahead, may your mind be curious, your heart courageous, and your presence compassionate.